X-ray. The more we can blur the lines between farmer and maltster and brewer, I think the better product we're going to have. It's the Beervana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, Professor of Economics at Oregon State University, and with me, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of the newly released Beer Bible 2nd Edition. Get yours now! Hey, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How's it going? Uh, wet. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, atmospheric river, they call it. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we had a long, dry snap, and then it has been Coming in firmly buckets. interrupted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's super warm, which is depressing for those of us who like to get up in the mountains in this play in the snow. Uh, there's not a lot of snow being made. There's a lot of rain being made, which is bad. Yeah, I guess you have to go high. Huh? Bad and sad. It's like the the snow levels something like over eight thousand feet, so you got to go really high. Okay. high, higher than the ski areas and the and the cross country areas. So fingers well, crossed, we get a little cold and precipitation together, and that would be good. Right. Yeah. Well. It is what it is. These are the these are the times we live in, um, and I guess we have to get used to it. Precipitation is better than no precipitation, but yes, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take wet. Yeah, water is good. We need water, so <laughs> keep it coming. Uh, keeping the for keeping the forest moist are good too. That's going to be a good thing. So that's right. So do I hear a little a little uh, something in, a catch in your throat uh, a huskiness <laughs> something uh, something you'd like to divulge? Yes, I am recovering from COVID as what you're referring to. I know how you're trying to sneak that in. Uh, it finally, <laughs> so COVID finally caught up with me. Uh, it's not a surprise given these Omicron days. My son plays high school basketball, and if you think you can stop Omicron spreading among high school basketball students, you are mistaken. But it laid me out for a good – well, it kind of came and went, but uh, the total process was about nine days to get rid of it. It wasn't terrible. Like it was sort of like a medium flu without fever. But yeah, got COVID. Yeah. <laughs> and you were uh, vaxxed and boosted, so that helped. Yeah, vaxxed, boosted, all that. So it's been a fun COVID adventure. Uh, it's um, It wasn't fun. I mean I was basically out of commission for a week. Uh, uh as I say, it was nothing too terrible. Like it was um, nothing worrying, but uh, I just felt the sort of typical flu, fatigue, aching, uh, dizzy, foggy head kind of stuff that just kind of kept me horizontal mostly. <laughs> you, well, you got Omicron, which was the weakest variant, and now you have the Omicron antibodies and you have the vax and you have the boost. So if something really terrible comes along, you're ready, man. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. I hope that's I hope that's the end of it. Well, so Oregon, along with California and Washington, is about to uh, um, do away with the mask mandate, the indoor mask mandate. And um, so I feel like I'm ready for that. Like, let's go. I'm ready to go in indoors without masks, man. <laughs> well, I'm about as protected as I can be by my own immune system. Have you have you been checking out the stats? Uh, um, I, I usually go to Worldometer's COVID thing because it's easier than the uh, CDC's uh, portal. <laughs> yeah. um, and they have some nice toggles like uh, infections per million, I think, or 100,000. I'm not sure what it is. But ha have you checked those recently? No. Guess which state has done the very best, including the District of Columbia, 51st in infections per capita 
Really? Our old dear Oregon? Beaver State, baby. Wow. So, yeah, we we have some I don't I I think there's a whole complex formulation about who who gets most more infections and you know, testing is actually an issue, so it's not yeah, not perfectly empirical, but uh but still um something to be thankful for that we live in a state like that. Yeah, and for me it's interesting because I never like I I tested myself at home. Uh, by the way, I got those little uh, free home tests that the government provided, and those those actually ended up quite handy because that's how I was able to confirm. Um, I didn't really have any doubt because my son tested positive, and then I got sick, and <laughs> I knew. Right. But at first, I didn't test positive, and then I took another test. But I'm one of those people that self you know self tested, and so I'm not part of the f- official statistics. Right, exactly. Uh, all right. Well, uh, hopefully we come back with a bang because uh, we have a pretty cool show for you today. Uh, throughout the throughout most of the past 10,000 years, brewing was a farmhouse chore, one of the many ways people preserve their harvest throughout the year. In more recent times, it has become a commercial and industrial activity. Yet in a verdant pocket of Loudoun County, Virginia, about an hour northwest of Washington, D.C., the husband and wife team of Bonnie and John Branding are conducting an ambitious experiment. They've revived farmhouse brewing, growing their own barley, using wild yeast from the land, and brewing it up in a barn. On today's show, we're going to hear their story and learn how they're making this work in a 21st century world. All that soon, but first, the news. The big news of the moment, indeed the biggest news of 2022, is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which happened five days ago as we record this podcast. Uh, since we're not going to uh, send this out live, trying to update the events of the moment makes no sense. However, we can pass along this beer-related news fragment. Uh, over the weekend of the the first weekend of the war for us, that was just that just happened. Eve-based <laughs> uh, craft brewery Pravda switched from brewing beer to preparing bottles of Molotov cocktails. And for the folks in the beer industry, or the you know beer Twitter and all that, that that was one of those kind of moments of clarity. Like this is a a real thing, and people are really suffering. And um, you know. Beer is a quotidian uh, activity. It's lovely; we love it. But at the end of the day, uh, it's it's not central, and and it really is clarifying when you have tanks and and planes flying overhead. Yeah, uh, goodness knows what it'll be like when people listen to this, but um, it's pretty horrifying and and shocking. I had a a, a graduate student a few years ago, a Ukrainian guy. Um, I'm not exactly sure where he is at the moment. I'm kind of hoping he's not there uh, because he's in his late 20s and a young Ukrainian man. Um, and uh, yeah, I I pray for his safety and everyone else there. Um, it's pretty horrifying to see war return to the European continent. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah, it, it, is, it is such a small world. And one of the ways in which it felt smaller was when I looked into this brewery Pravda, which is a craft brewery mm-hmm. uh, in Lviv, which is over in the West. So, uh, you know, away from the, away from Russia toward Poland. Yeah. Um, it turns out that, I don't know if he was their first brewer or their second brewer, but uh, one of their very first brewers was a Portlander, 
uh, Corey McGinnis, who had come from Old Town Brewing and went out there and brewed with them for three years. (laughs) Yeah, it was was very cool. And it was like, wow, small world. Um, You know, we're just we're just that close to the rest of the people on the planet. It didn't used to feel that way, but it really does feel watching uh, the, you know, all this play out on Twitter and seeing Ukrainians on Twitter and seeing videos and, and all, it feels very close. Yeah. One quick little anecdote about my student is he, he went to a Ukrainian grocery store that was near Corvallis, I think in Salem, but I'm not sure exactly where it was. Uh, but it turned out to be a Ukrainian grocery store that was run by ethnic Russians. And uh, he came back just like I could see him almost shaking with rage because they were really um, unpleasant to him uh, uh, as a as a Ukrainian, um, and they they were trying to get him to speak Russian, and he refused uh, to speak Russian. They were sort of rude and uh, slightly abusive uh, to him, and that was my wow. first that was my first clue about the complicated. Uh, situation of ethnic Russians in Ukraine and Ukrainians. And um, I didn't really understand until he sort of started to explain that. But uh, it was very interesting to me um, uh, that, you know, his experience and, and how the, the ethnic Russians and Ukrainians interact and, and see each other. So uh, really, really depressing, pretty tragic. Um, and um, pray for everybody's safety, of course. Yeah. Let's hope that it ends quickly, and maybe by the time you hear this, uh, it'll be better news. Let's yeah, hope. uh, hopefully uh, uh, saner minds prevail. <laughs> so, right. All right, we have two brewery closures to report, uh, and the situations are key in ways opposite. On Valentine's Day, Alan Sprintz announced that he was closing legendary Hair of the Dog, the brewery he founded in 1993. It was never a financial juggernaut, but may have done more to change beer in the city than any other brewery. Sprints is in his early 60s. His kids didn't want to carry the brewery forward, and he owns the brewery building. He was just ready to retire. Contrast that with the closure of Modern Times, a five-minute walk from the hair of the dog. The San Diego-based brewery was a massive success, the 40th largest craft brewery in the United States with a string of pubs along the coast. Yet the brewery grew too fast and was overleveraged and is in immediate financial peril. The new CEO is looking for a buyer. Yeah. You never know how these things are going to turn out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know anything, you know, because it's his company. I don't know anything about Hair the Dog, but he seemed to be just going along quite uh, uh, quite well. He um, That that uh, uh, brewery on Water Street has been there for, what, 15 years, I'm guessing? Maybe a little less. Um, uh, but always seemed to be doing well, and, and uh, Hair the Dog is a much, much, much beloved brewery among the beer condescenti <laughs> yeah and uh for those who don't live in portland it, it was the reason it was influential is because in 1993 he launched the brewery uh with a series his first beer was called adam it was based on adam beer sort of an impressionistic taste on the uh, obsolete style from uh, germany he followed it up with golden rose uh, like a belgian triple and which no longer exists and then uh, his third beer was Fred, uh, kind of an American strong ale named after the writer Fred Eckhart. And all of these beers were incredibly strong yeah. uh, in an era in which pub ales were the were king. And, um, you know, it really, in that way, uh, you know, pushed the, it was like the four minute mile. 
the, conceptually, we, we had a sense that other things were possible after Hair of the Dog that we didn't necessarily before Hair of the Dog. So here in our little pocket, and, you know, it, it, I don't know how, how wide his influence went, but here in our little pocket, it was uh, pretty big. Yeah. I mean, these were big, bold beers. And I would even, I mean, I don't know what your take is, but I would suggest that uh, uh, one beer that he's not particularly um, known for, but I know, I know him for is Blue Dot, his IPA, which... Uh, which was a big, bold, super hot forward IPA that I think kind of helped push that that genre in that direction as well. Yeah, uh, he I think is widely known for that. It's okay. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's maybe it's most popular beer because it is an IPA. I was at the brewery on Friday, uh, and actually I was around on Wednesday too, interviewing Alan. I'll have a big piece on that on the blog in okay. probably next week. Yeah, and. Uh, then I went back and, and drank some beer and uh, had a blue dot. So yeah, uh, it, he's, he's going to be open until uh, the summer or until the beer runs out. So if you're in the area, you can go down and, and have a pint. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to get yeah. down there. So modern times, interesting story. It was, uh, they, they put an outpost in Portland, which is always kind of a risky proposition. It's becoming a little bit more common now. Um, but I think, were they the first? I can't no. remember. No. Uh, Fatheads was definitely the first out of state to land, or one. I don't know if they were the first out of state, uh, but like the first weird, really far away <laughs> yeah. brewery to land. I'm not sure if Fatheads ever sort of uh, gained a, um, a following among local beer people, but Modern Times certainly was welcomed. I think they, they seem. Oh to- yeah, I can't imagine. It's impossible for me, me to imagine that that uh, the the Portland Modern Times was not successful. Um, it was, you know, housed in the former building of the common. So it had a brewery, so it had a brewery, they had a kitchen. Uh, it was wildly popular. Uh, yeah. you know, I didn't actually see how, how things were going during COVID, uh, super closely. I don't have a great sense of many breweries during yeah. COVID, but they did have a big bottle, uh, uh, club. And I know that that was very successful. So, um, you know, the company is in dire straits and the fact that they had to close this successful brewery is just yeah. evident. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, they are, uh, I don't know. I don't know enough about them to make too many, to draw too many conclusions, but I can sort of make some suppositions. And one of the things is it seems like they were leaning heavily on this sort of having their own outputs, out, out uh, outlets, outposts, I guess is what I was looking for, um, mm-hmm. in different areas. And that, that became really challenging during COVID, I am sure, uh, when draft volumes went way down and foot traffic went way down. And so I imagine that that was a big, a big challenge. Um, I don't know if that was the, the only cause or, or even a big one, but I'm guessing that was a, a big factor, especially for a place like the one in Portland. Yeah. I, I, I you know, I've, I, I'm, I'm really curious about the whole company and I think uh, we'll probably hear some more reporting about what's going on uh they just hired a new ceo and she got in and looked at things and said <laughs> immediately <laughs> yeah <laughs> immediately closed four of the pubs uh so well i look forward right. to what comes next in that in that location because ever since the commons built it out it's an amazing place and a great location uh lovely building and brewery so i'm hoping that yeah uh, it's kind of a turnkey operation i'm hoping someone good will jump in there I do too. And people keep saying it's snake bit, but the truth is the reason Commons closed had nothing to do with the location. And the reason uh, Modern Times closed had nothing to do with the location. It's not the location that's bad. Yeah. Um, so I, <laughs> in fact, it's great. It's an awesome location. Yeah. I expect that uh, 
it'll get snapped up as a turnkey brewery and and uh, brew pub. So. Uh, look forward to it <laughs> this is yeah. you know this is this is kind of craft beer to me in the sense that uh that a lot especially smaller local breweries are a lot like kind of small local restaurants you know they have their time and then it's not too uncommon to see them reimagined under some new leadership so um, i tip my hat to you you were the first person i meant i heard mentioning that comparison long before uh, <laughs> uh people commonly did that so you you were your your econ- your keen economist i saw that that's right <laughs> uh okay we should turn to our main topic um uh which is our uh interview with john branding right is it john and bonnie or just john I am not 100% sure. I've been communicating with John, but I noticed that Bonnie's name was on the email thread, so we may get lucky and have the two of them. So we're, we're about to find out, and the listeners can find out along with us. It'll be a, a big reveal yeah, here. that's right. We this don't is know. one of these ones that we're actually doing in situ, I guess, in the middle, in the middle of the pod. So, uh, so coming up that's is right. our interview with um, John and potentially Bonnie Branding of uh, Wheatland Spring Brewery in Waterford, Virginia. And here we are with John and Bonnie Branding from Wheatland Springs. In and you guys are we we described it as being an hour northwest of DC in Loudoun County. Did we get that part right? Yeah, that's yeah. about right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, I know a little bit about your brewery based on the beer that you've sent me uh, now two times, and uh, your information rich website but for the folks who don't know you why don't you give us a little bit of background on uh how you got into the idea of of doing a farmhouse brewery do you you have a background in in farming like what how did you guys get into this yeah i have to right off the bat we have a fun story for you jeff so uh, a long time ago john and i worked at the same company um i'm originally from west virginia i grew up in a rural area, um, always had an affinity for farming and my neighbors had some hundreds of acres of cattle farm, but I would never lived on one. Um, John and I met, uh, ended up moving to Germany together. I lived in Berlin for six months and Munich for about four years, four and a half years after that. Mm. Um, and a short time into our uh, time in Germany, um, after visiting a number of uh, beautiful breweries there, specifically uh, farm breweries where you would Uh, go out and, uh, you know, literally park next to the hops, perhaps that you would be tasting there in the, in the tap room some minutes later. Uh, John said to me, you know, one day, wouldn't it be great if we could have our own farm brewery? And I kind of, (laughs) I sort of rolled my eyes and said, oh yeah, that sounds wonderful. You add that to the wish list. Um, And then, you know, time went on and we kept doing this. So on the weekends we would drive out from Munich and visit different places um, in Bayern or in France or in Austria. And uh, we really, uh, it became more than a hobby. Um, we just had a real interest in it and we wanted to learn more. We realized that we never had uh, personally the experience in the U.S. that we were having there. We, you know, driving on to a working farm, seeing uh, grains growing or hops growing mm-hmm. and understanding, you know, what was actually in the glass that we were drinking. So uh a long time later, we uh, moved back to the United States. Uh, we've got a couple of kids now. Uh, we lived in Alexandria, Virginia for a while. And still in the back of our heads, there was always this idea that 
boy, one day, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could jump in and live our dream? Um, so really, John was, uh, you know, the one driving this more than anything. But uh, I think I could have been the one in Alexandria to pull the trigger and said, let's do it. And we started touring farms. Um, we would stay for uh, some weekends and bed and breakfast in this area. We didn't even know where it was, but we uh, fell in love with it. And we said, where are we? This is only an hour from DC and it's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, we looked at farms in this area. Um, that's kind of how, how it all started. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, it, in Europe, there is a long tradition, an unbroken tradition of people uh, making uh, beer on the farms that they live in, but that tradition was long severed here. So it's true. There's, there's not so many of you folks out there. Um, and the, the other thing is, you know, brewing, brewing is a technical, uh, job. It requires skill and knowledge. And I assume farming is, I, I know less about farming, but it sounds like you guys had background in neither of these. So, <laughs> uh, was, were you intimidated by figuring out how to pull all this together and how did you how did you, finding the farm seems like the least of your problems. How did you get, get going on the other part? Well, that's what, um, one of the things that is kind of different in our story, John, uh, had a desire to learn how to brew with the end goal of having a farm brewery. So it wasn't that he was a home brewer and that, you know, inspired him to say, Hey, maybe one day I would like to do this professionally. It was kind of the other way around the, the goal of having a farm brewery was there before he, you know, took up a, a hobby and interest in learning about brewing. Uh, we always knew that a professional brew staff would be a part of our our dream here. And we always knew that we wanted to be active in the farming, um, actually getting our hands in the dirt. Uh, yeah, there's parts of that that were, you know, perhaps um, intimidating. Uh, luckily, we live in an area uh, that is thriving with small farming activity. Uh, lots of friends um, who have been farming uh, both for a short time and for longer uh, uh, longer times, um, available to ask questions to um, on farming. And um, John, anything to add to that? Yeah, no, uh, Jeff, the question is, uh, how did we uh, decide to do that? And we ask ourselves that uh, on a weekly basis. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's yeah. a lot of work. There's no question about it. Um, but this was uh, getting back to what Bonnie was saying about uh, going out to some of these spots. I'm sure you'd recognize some of these breweries in, in uh, the Alsace-Lorraine in France or in parts of Bavaria. Um, but there's something uh, there's something really meaningful, deeply meaningful about the connection between agriculture and brewing that they they keep out there and they, they hold very uh, close to them. And so that's something that we um, we, we found really special. Um, and so that that idea is something that we took very seriously. As far as uh, background in farming, I mean, I, I grew up in Illinois, spent summers at my grandparents' farm. Uh, that doesn't qualify me to be a farmer, <laughs> um, but I had that bug. So I, I had that uh, kind of always in the back of my mind is something that I, uh, I, have, I have a lot of respect for farmers. And so um, when we got here and we started doing this, there's, there's really not a playbook. Uh, there, there's not a playbook for small scale, small grain farming. Certainly not for the sole purpose of brewing beer. Um, so we had to be scrappy. And so we just read as much as we could talk to as many people as we could, um, trying to get involved here in the, uh, the nascent grain shed of the mid Atlantic. And that's grain shed, uh, for folks who <laughs> are as deep into small grains as we are, 
is is the uh, the growing region uh, that promotes certain types of uh, grains that are bred for this area, for bakers or for maltsters or for whomever might benefit from uh, small grains. Because right now, uh, vast majority of brewers and bakers uh, use in the brewing world use commodity malt, and in the baking world use uh, commodity grain, uh, and those are mm. grown in centralized locations around the world. And so. What, what we find really exciting about this is actually a decentralization of grains and making them more regional and making them more small scale. Uh, and as, as you, you both are, I'm sure, aware of the challenges that have happened with the, uh, the barley harvest this past year, decentralizing yeah. is also a way to hedge some of those risks. Yeah. Can I jump in, Jeff? This is Patrick, Please. by the way. And I was just curious how finicky or how difficult uh, barley is as a crop to grow. Is it is it, does it have particular challenges or is it fairly straightforward? Yeah, it's, I mean, farming is tough. You can do everything right and mother nature decides uh, it's a no-go and there's nothing you can do about that. Um, yeah. But for malting barley, which is different than feed barley, um, mm -hmm. it has different requirements, different specifications, and you have to hit certain numbers when you send it to the lab before the malt house will even accept it uh, to malt mm -hmm. it. So uh, there's different uh, levels of, um, of specifications that you you have to hit and all that has to do with the the care and feeding during the uh uh the planting um while you're tending them you harvest them and then after you harvest them it takes a ton of work and so there's a lot of parts there um that have to go just right in order for the malt to come out good news is um there are a number of uh, places around the u.s right now who are focused on breeding malting barley uh, which has not always been the case and so right the process from researching to actually putting it in a uh, glass of beer takes about a decade. And mm -hmm. good news is we're partnered with Virginia Tech, and they decided about a decade ago to <laughs> put a lot of resources into malting barley. And so we're on the cusp of a huge wave of new cultivars of barley becoming available for the mid-Atlantic region, specifically for malting into, uh, into um, grain for beer. And one oh, of the great. Really interesting conversations that we have with some of our customers is um, helping them to see and understand the the difference in what we're uh, growing here on the farm, the uh, the extreme effort we take uh, to promote soil health. Um, it really is, like you said, a complete profession on its own alongside brewing. Um, when you think about uh, you were going back, you were saying, is any of this intimidating? Just to comment one more thing on that. Uh, yes. So right off the bat, we were not only starting from scratch, building a farm that whose that's sole intention would be to provide crop and ingredient into the beer. So the farm was not, you know, established in grain. We, we weren't working it for any other purpose. We established it in order to brew with whatever we could produce here. So an entire operation um, of farming then leading into the brewing operation, which, you know, a lot of us are perhaps more familiar with. So um, I really want to hear more about the barley. Uh, this is something that in the last year or two I've gotten quite engaged with. But let's back up just a hair. And why don't you describe your farm and what you, you know, how big is it? And what, what do you only grow barley? Uh, how is that configured? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So it's 30 acres. Um, and uh, we're fortunate. Uh, apparently, a long time ago, giant blocks of ice uh, rolled through here. We, we weren't around then, uh, but we've read about <laughs> it. Um, and they dropped off a lot of great topsoil. This area of the country has, we're told, some of the best topsoil in the nation. Uh, and so 
we're able to, to use that to grow um, some really uh, amazing produce here, including small grains. There's, there's 400 acres of sustainable farms across the road from us uh, who do the same thing, and they, they produce amazing uh, fruits and vegetables and herbs and all sorts of things. So uh, one of it is, is just being incredibly fortunate geographically. Uh, we're in a really, really great growing area. Uh, as far as the production goes, we um, we practice a form of regenerative agriculture, uh, and so we take cover cropping very seriously. Um, right now, one of our whole fields is dedicated to cover crops over the season uh, to uh, replenish the soil, uh, build back nitrogen and all sorts of other things uh, that, that the, uh, the ground needs. The, the idea being you want to put more in than you take out, and every time you take out something like a barley or a wheat or a triticale, um, you have to put at least that back and, and ideally more than that back. So um, we have about two thirds of our property dedicated to small grain farming. Uh, and the rest of it is a smattering of um, either uh, uh, um, chestnut trees or we have a pear tree, we have a, a, an herb garden. We have all sorts of different uh, parts here that we use for the beer uh, as kind of ancillary or adjuncts that we would put in the beer. But the vast, vast majority uh, is dedicated to small grains. Mm. And uh, the proportion of the grain you're growing um, is is it mostly barley or what all are you growing? Yeah, it and this is this is kind of the the fun thing and the the challenging part about this too, Jeff. Is um, you know we're we're starting to think right now about our 2023 <laughs> uh, right because it depends on the 2023 harvest, which depends on the 2022 planting, which we need to get on now so we can start to source those uh, grains. So. Right. Um, it, it really puts planning in a whole different perspective for us. Uh, so we're thinking years out on what kind of beers we want to produce. So um, usually it's it, it maps fairly closely to a grist. So if we're going to do 75% barley, 25% wheat, I'm making these numbers up, but that's about right. So we can use it um, in those beers in the coming year. <laughs> so you are uh, doing more than barley. You've got some wheat in there. You mentioned triticale. Is yeah. that also? Yeah, we, we had it last year. We took it out. It's a rye wheat hybrid. Um, right. And uh, boy, it's, it's one of these things where this is, this is one of these parts of, of doing this that kind of was surprising looking back on it. And it shouldn't have been, I guess, but watching um, these grains grow from what looks like little blades of grass because they are grass um, into right. the heads and then having them come out. And you're tasting them along the way. You're looking at them. You're 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 going through all these parts of it. It gives it. It's given me, and I think it's given everyone on our team a much better sense for where this stuff actually comes from, where these tastes come from, how they develop. Um, and triticale was one of these things where it was growing, and then you start picking out the heads and you start looking at them, and you can understand how this is a rye weed hybrid uh, and the flavors and all these other sorts of things from the field, through the malt house and back to the brew house. You having that. Um, that memory of what it tasted like the previous spring and summer, it kind of brings it back full circle um, for uh, for how we perceive the beers. And am I right that you don't have a malt house? You, you decided not to build also a malt house. Uh, to yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> made that decision for us, I think, for the time being. <laughs> yeah, I mean, malting is a whole other profession unto itself. And so these are, right. I, we think for us, the, it, it was a big enough uh, a bite to take uh, to do the farming uh, and the brewing uh, for now. Uh, we'll see what the future holds, though. And who do you, who who malts your your grain then? Uh, Murphy and Rue down in Charlottesville. It's a two hour drive from here. Okay. Uh, well, should we while while we're talking about this grain and this malt that you're doing here, uh, should we maybe have a a beer? What do you think, Patrick? 
Uh, I think it's a good idea, Jeff. Yeah. We always try to get to that as soon as possible. This this whole podcast thing started out as a way for us to get together and drink beers. So. <laughs> Smart. Can't miss that. So sh- sh- should we start out with the return? And uh, why don't why don't Bonnie and John, why don't you tell us about this beer? Yeah. So uh, return... Uh, is the uh, the first beer in our state line. So uh, for since we opened two months after we opened, uh, we offered beers with uh, with grain that we grew. We we actually had grain in the ground before we had a brew house here, um, and that was the first of our uh, line of estate beers. And so the idea is, even though we've had ingredients we've grown uh, in in many beers over the years so far, uh, estate is the first one with 100% of the grain, uh, the grist being made of grain that we grow here. So uh, Return is a, uh, a Piedmont Pilsner. Uh, Piedmont's a reference to our agricultural growing region here. Uh, and that's meaningful to us because we think the there's a real opportunity here with, um, I guess, reintroducing regionalism in, in some of our foods here in the U.S. And so this is our our small step uh, in that direction. Uh, it's Violetta Barley. The, the cultivar is Violetta. Um, that comes from Germany, but it was determined that it grew well here in the U.S. And so... A lot of folks in some of the um, some of the uh, the same region here grow grow that. Uh, excited to to note that while we're talking about cultivars, we have um, Avalon, which is the next the the first cultivar and the next big one coming out of Virginia Tech in our fields right now. Um, so we'll have a version of this beer with a different barley, uh, about uh, well, hopefully about nine months from now, maybe ten months. All right. Well, it's a it's a really beautiful beer. It's uh, a little bit hazy, uh, kind of a honey straw color. And it, man, it just formed an incredible head, mm-hmm. super fluffy head. Uh, lovely, lovely head. I'm getting a lot of aromatics off of the beer. How, uh, how, you don't grow your own hops. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. For, for us, it's, we, we try to get away from this idea of like a, a local beer because it's not a novelty to us. We, we try to make the best possible beer we can. And because beer is an agricultural product, we grow those best ingredients we can. And whatever we can't grow well ourselves, we source from our neighbors or we sure. put the concentric circles out to find those places that do grow them well. So our belief is that hops in the next 10 to 15 years are actually there's going to be some great, uh, great options out here in the mid-Atlantic. But uh, today it's... Um, it's more difficult. We do have a hop farmer we work with about eight miles east of here, uh, and he does a great job. He's a wine grower, and so he knows ag. Um, but that's only usually for limited uh, applications. What do you think, Patrick? You have some comments? On that? <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, I have, I'm distracted by a cat who's decided to join me once he heard my beer being open. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's lovely. It's really... Um, delightfully aromatic really soft on the palate um but the the hops come through i'm getting them now sort of in the aftertaste nice um nice palate cleansing uh hops i'm sort of uh floral but noble no yeah they're they're alsatian and that's kind of a nod to um i guess my my background i have uh, ancestors from the alsace and so the the idea of return was uh this kind of inspiration that bonnie and i had in in france and in germany with some of these spots and then trying to, to begin a new tradition here in the U.S. Uh, with uh, with the estate harvests. Uh, which which hops did you use then? Are they Strissel's Paul? Uh, I, Jeff, I can't tell you the recipe to Coke. <laughs> 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 yeah, 
Yes, because somebody could easily uh, <laughs> produce this beer, right? Yeah. You really have to worry about that. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, yeah there, there's Strussel in there. Um, and that's those are some of the top notes you're getting. There's almost like a cedar that comes through uh, a mm-hmm. bit. And part of that, too, is because the, the, um, the grain, we have it all custom malted. Uh, and so this, we requested it be very, very uh, a gentle touch. So that yeah. mm-hmm. more of the field could come through uh, versus the uh, the maltster's hand. Yeah. So uh, describe what when you taste this because this is the first you know few swallows I've had and and I'm I'm trying to acclimatize myself to the character of the malt here. But you've had a lot more experience with this. Would uh, so what I'm getting is a kind of uh, uh, it, it's lightly sweet. There is a it's not super grainy. It's more in a kind of a Mm, like I don't know, s- sweet, sweet bread flavor. Uh, that's kind of what I'm getting. What 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 is the character of this barley and this malt uh, for you, John and Bonnie? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I would have to agree with you. So I think in all of our pilsners, um, that's I I have to say that's my favorite style of beer. Um, I one of the other pilsners that we brew found artifacts. Um, I find uh, a bit more crisp than this one. Um, when I experienced return uh, for the first time over the last months, I agree with you. I think there is um, a, a touch of sweetness to it. Uh, for me, maybe a touch more in a, uh, reminiscent of uh, a Hellas in there as well, but very clearly a Pilsner. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think the for me, it, it's... Return is such a great name for the beer. Um, I really do have these moments, uh, whether it's just a uh, a smell when we're brewing or uh, a moment when I'm I'm smelling one of these beers, and it could be the Alsatian hops that John was talking about. But I really am transported to our travels in in Germany and and in the Alsace, and this beer. Uh, a few times when I have uh, poured it on draft, the, the first smell for me immediately reminds me of Alsatian. Um, and I agree that a, a touch of sweetness on it. Yeah. And this, Jeff, this gets back to what I was just mentioning a couple of minutes ago, hundred percent, everything Bonnie said, I agree with. Um, and, and this is what, when you taste barley out in the field and it's still milky before it starts to form into the, uh, the, the firm heads, mm-hmm. to me, it, it has this almost rice milk taste to it. It has this kind of sweet, milky kind of, um, softness, uh, like if you have rice pudding or something like that. And so when I have this beer, that's kind of where my, my, my memory goes back to is tasting it out in the field and having that delicate, it's a, it's a very, very, very delicate, gentle sweetness, but it's there. There's a different approach if you're a farm brewer from an industrial brewer in that for uh, a large brewer, consistency is key and you want your beer always to taste the same. Um, that's, you know, that's the thing that you're offering. That's your, your value proposition. <laughs> a Budweiser always tastes like a Budweiser. If you're growing different barleys, uh, different barley varieties, um, you're actually trying to produce different expressions from the land. So what are your, have you guys thought about, uh, how these different barley varieties that you're going to use will impact the flavor and, and change them? And, you know, you're... <laughs> From a brewer's perspective, trying to brew with a different barley and uh, each year seems like it would pose some challenges. 
yeah, so you're exactly right. So we celebrate it. So just like uh, an estate winery, uh, when you go for a tasting and they'll pour you a vertical and they'll talk to you about the weather that year and how the grapes were performing and everything that they celebrate in different vintages of wine, we like to celebrate in our vintage, vintages of beer as well. Um, we have such a, a fun time in the tap room, uh, letting someone experience beer in that way and uh, letting them know that, you know, the next variation of one of our farmhouse ales, even though the exact recipe may have been used, uh, it is very likely may be quite different. Um, and so that's something uh, on my end, I do more front of house work. And that's something that we, uh, you know, really enjoy uh, front of house. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's it. As far as, um, as far as the, the macros go and producing consistent beers, uh, I have nothing but respect uh, for the brewers and the engineers who are able to pull that off. It is incredible. Taking an agricultural input, which is necessary, necessarily variable, and creating something that is uniform worldwide is, is a feat. It's, it's really impressive. Um, for, for us, quality and flavor expression of the individual um, uh, malting batches or the individual harvests is our top priority. Um, and so consistency necessarily falls down the list for us. Um, we always want it to be consistently high quality, but the flavor expression mm -hmm. itself is going to change. For this, for this new barley we have in the field uh, I mentioned before, um, we don't know how it's going to perform. Uh, no one does. <laughs> to, to our knowledge, no one's ever, we're about 18 months ahead because we have this relationship with Virginia Tech. We were able to, to experiment with these and we're going to give them data back from what we find. Um, we're going to be making malted barley and beer from that malted barley uh, as a first. And so that's exciting to me. To me, that's innovation. Um, that's that's getting down to the the very basis of what we're doing here and trying to find new cultivars that perform well here. We, we actually we did a pilot project with Virginia Tech where we had 12 different rows, um, they call them lines of um, experimental barley. The Virginia Secretary of Agriculture was out here helping us plant them. Um, and, and the idea is to short circuit this 10-year uh, cycle in about five years. And so if we could do some, some quick um, innovation here where they are determined to be good in the field and we can prove to be good in the malt house and the brew house, Maybe we can send them that data to send them in the right directions for promising new lines of barley. And how this helps others is looking at other small farmers across Virginia, across the Piedmont, who may have been growing other things for a long time. And they're finding that their return on investment is no longer working for their finances on the farm. If we're able to provide to them and be a part of this uh, relationship with Virginia Tech and provide them uh, seeds that they're able to grow that has a, a, a market that's uh, thirsty for that quality grain. Um, that's a win for not just us, but for agriculture and for the Piedmont and for small farmers. And we get quite inspired by that as well. Absolutely. And, and that's where the grain shed comes in, uh, because once they have information on how these perform uh, in the field, all these have different parentages uh, that can go back to the other ones, and then they can figure out which ones are best for uh, pastry flour or bread flour, and then those can grow in small farms here in the uh, in the Mid Atlantic. Mm. I'm interested in the process uh, of turning a brand new uh, barley or malt into uh, beer. So, are you do you um, do you get a sense of what it's going to be just by sort of tasting the malt as it comes from the maltster, do you think? Or is it going to take a number of test batches to come up with the right recipe? Or how do you how do you approach that? 
Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I'm not sure I have a great answer. <laughs> You'll find out. Right? We're, we're, we're dealing. With, yeah, exactly. We're we're dealing with so many variables, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we we have the luxury of having these these grains planted on a relatively small footprint. I mean, our farm for grain farms is tiny. Right. Most grain farms are thousands and thousands of acres. They've been in you know ten generations of farmers. And so for us to do this uh, for the first time on such a small scale um, has a bunch of challenges. But one of the huge advantages is that we get to have very consistent barley when it comes off the field uh, because it's such a small footprint. And so um, we have an extremely tight relationship with our maltsters um, and we, we talk with them multiple times a week uh, about a bunch of different things. But this is the sort of thing we're having a crap malt house uh, as you're close partner is really helpful because you have really honest conversations about the the grain and then the malt and you get to talk about what's happening here. And it's, you know, sometimes as simple as, Hey, um, this batch that came in, uh, the friability is so-and-so as so you maybe check your mill settings and give mm-hmm. them a tweak or it's, Hey, um, yeah, we got an, a late rain in June. Um, so we're going to have to watch out for pre-sprout damage. And that's something that we need to consider as we're taking this off the field and then storing it. So there, there's a, this constellation we talk a lot about with farmer, maltster, and brewer um, is a is one we try to tighten. And uh, there's a chef up in New York who who wrote something like this that I, I think is so right, is that the more we can blur the lines between farmer and maltster and brewer, I think the better product we're going to have. Right. Uh, so I, I'm not up as much on uh, barley as I am on hops. How many pounds per acre do you get and how, how many... Uh, barrels of beer does that convert into like your your 20 acres that you're growing how much beer can you get out of that yeah it depends um so there's uh the the farms uh a lot of the ones uh that grow heavily up in uh, the northwest um not as far northwest as you all but um (laughs) up in the the high desert there uh they're irrigated Mm -hmm. and so they can control the moisture a lot better so they really are densely um planted and so they can get quite a bit off of an acre um, the, the, what I always say to put it more in real terms for folks is, um, there's a, there's a, a place up in Connecticut, a brewery up there where they, they started this uh, four square foot project, which is super cool. I love it. Um, and they have in their tap room, they have a, a painted blue square that's four feet and that's about as much barley as you need for one pint of beer. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Not, not nothing. <laughs> No, it's, it's not. not. <laughs> there's yeah. a lot to consider. So you can't say it on a, a yearly basis because there's crop rotation, there's field rotation, there's lots of things that play into it. But from our acreage, I did calculate once that on our uh, on our farm we could farm enough for over a hundred thousand p- pints of beer on our property. Gotcha. In, in Is it? Is it an annual? That, that, that seems pretty ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> Is barley an annual crop? By the way, do you get one harvest a year or? It's, it's one and done. And there's, yep. you know, there's whole, there's a bunch of different things if you're doing conventional farming, double cropping and all sorts of other things. And there's also spring varietals and winter varietals. And so um, we, we only plant winter right. um, for a bunch of different reasons, because then we cover crop the rest of the cycle. Uh, but it's the, the really exciting cultivars coming down the pipeline are going to be some winter barleys and some winter wheats that I think show a ton of promise. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the brewing. Uh, it says on the website that your your uh, brewery is in the is in a barn. Is that right? 
Yeah. yeah, it's a hundred-year-old corn crib. So it used to store animal feed, and now it stores uh, malted uh, barley. Yeah. The, <laughs> all the buildings here um, are quite historic. That's actually I, I'm thinking for a moment. That's the newest building on the farm. The other buildings date from 1832. Wow! Holy crap! That's wow. impressive. <laughs> <laughs> we're out, we're out here. We're, we're uh, in Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the corn crib uh, houses the brew house. It's about 100 years old. It's 101 years old now. Um, and we certainly had to make some renovations, make it, uh, you know, safe for the manufacturing space inside. Um, but a lot of it is still intact. When you walk in, there's an upstairs loft where people are able to come and, and gather and there's a lot of, um, of the original character there, and we've left it that way intentionally. Across from that barn, there is a 200-year-old barn that is left almost as as it was. So a little piece of history there for folks. Um, are you the brewer, John? No, uh, we, we have a really talented head brewer who does all the day-to-day work. Okay. Uh, I'm curious, if so, you know, one of the things that, as a writer, I've noticed is the brewery configuration, the, the brew house configuration typically follows uh, a process that gets the most out of the ingredients that the brewery is, is shooting for. So like in the Northwest, we have uh, uh, brewery configurations that have these giant whirlpools and uh, cooling systems so that they can cool the, the wort down to 175 degrees when it gets to that whirlpool and incredibly Baroque systems for injecting hops into the fermenters and, and conditioning tanks. And, um, you know, it's when you go to, when you go to Belgium, it's an entirely different system that, you know, it's all really focused on yeast, when you were thinking about trying to get the flavor of the field into your beer, what were you thinking in terms of what, what your brewery would look like? What kind of system did you have and, and what have you learned in terms of how to brew to maximize the flavor of the field? Yeah. So um, there, I guess a couple different things. Uh, the first one that leaps out to me is um, when, when you approach it, like we do, like what we imagine many farms did hundreds of years ago, um, is you you operate within your constraints. So you operate within the barns that are available to you to do this stuff. And so none of this has been uh, built to um, uh, to accommodate those sorts of considerations. So for us, our our corn crib sits. Uh, maybe a hundred feet from the, uh, the fields. And so you, when the barley's up, you can see it grow from the brew deck. Um, and so for us, this kind of gets to this uh, mentality of farmhouse brewing um, because for us, it, it's more of a mindset than anything else. It's, it's, it's not limited to a style. It's kind of how we approach a lot of different things. And there's not this separation between the ingredients and what we do. Um, as far as the brew house goes, it's it's pretty straightforward. We uh, we brought we bought the kit actually up from uh, folks near you at Portland Kettle Works. Uh, it's all U.S. Oh, nice. U.S. made. Shook the hand of the welder um, who was making our our, uh, our rig, um, and it's lined up. Uh, when you know when you when you come visit, you'll see it. <laughs> it's the the corn crib has a drive through. If you're familiar with those, where the tractors used to go, and in the mm-hmm. top there there used to be openings where they drop down the uh, the feed that would go into the gravity wagons and take those out to the cattle to feed. And so we use some of those drops for things like our um, our mill. So we have a gravity drop mill that goes into the mash tun, 
Um, nice. Through one of these former holes that was made for animal feed. And there are no elevators in a barn. So we stay yeah. very fit here. Yeah. We, we haul off um, <laughs> our 50 pound sacks of grain one by one up to gravity feed them into the mash. It's, we are, you know, quite athletic here as well. <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's all these sorts of things that, that you know, we, we kind of follow that design philosophy of creating limitations to provide the inspiration for these things. And so our, our barrel storage is in a separate facility. It's in an, another old barn uh, that we move back and forth on the John Deere. Um, and we all- have no cold box that we can pallet jack right. uh, beer into. It's all very manual. We have, we're dollying kegs around. And- yeah. And, and so, and so for us, it's, it's all of these little pieces though, impact the end product. And I can't tell you exactly how, and maybe the breweries have been doing this for 400 years across Europe can or can't either, but all these little things play a role uh, in, in how the, uh, how the beer you know, actually is served out of the bottle. And the one thing I would bring up is also the cool ship. So right. um, while I don't think. That yes, was, I wanted to hear about that. Yeah, so good. So, um, I think um, probably around 2018, uh, when we were, I guess, finalizing our plans for what the building would look like, um, there's this beautiful upstairs loft that we spoke about a couple of times. There's some seating space. There's also, also the mill for a gravity drop. Um, and it's the perfect, you know, upstairs loft space for um, the cool ship. So um, coming right off of our fields and the hundreds of acres of sustainable fields that John spoke about across the road from us, um, all of that, uh, what we believe to be, you know, um, healthy, vibrant microflora are are able to come into the, the top loft. And uh, I think it's a romantic space. And like John said, uh, we don't know, and I don't know if people will know for another hundred years exactly everything that's happening um, with the cool ship and the uh, the ferment fermentation that happens up there. Um, but that's that's a piece of it, and that's I guess sort of a very romantic piece of it for me. Yeah, and, and I mean the the barns are you know they're oriented north south, so you get the winds at the end of the day that come through. Um, oh, nice. But for and that's all practical, right? So all the all these things that have kind of been. Um, somehow made into uh, a doctrine for, for some of this stuff. In our experience, having gone through this, it seems like very practical stuff on a farm. And there's a reason why you do it. It's not for, you know, you're not trying to follow a checklist. You're just doing what, what you need to do on the farm to make stuff work. Uh, and, and the cool ship itself, we, we do one spontaneous a year. Um, Can I, uh, let, let me interrupt you. Hold, hold off that. Patrick, you have one of these beers. Yeah, I've been sitting here waiting for my cue. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, right, it's right here in front of the microphone. So I have the what? the Merveille, which is the uh, farmhouse ale, uh, which yeah. is which is uh, uh, using yeast from the cool ship, right? Well, that we, we captured that in the Hope Tree, which you can see from the cool ship upstairs. Ah. So we, we have three kind of different, um, uh, yeah, elemental saisons that are all made with. Uh, native yeast to the farm. And so we, we had this thing what, two years ago now. We went out there, captured a bunch of yeasts. Uh, we have a, a uh, microbiologist uh, half hour from here, as, as one does. Um, sure. Uh, yeah, like, you know, like you guys do, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and uh, so he's been around here. <laughs> that's right. Um, and so he, uh, he isolated uh, a bunch of the yeast. We could tell there was metabolic activity happening. Um, and then he propped them up into 20 some different, um, uh, slurries. We pitched them in these micro batches and we started tasting through them over months and most of them were awful. Uh, they were not good at all. Now these are Saccharomyces? 
Yeah, diastaticus, but yeah, um, they were sack. And um, vast majority were really, really bad. But there were three that kind of jumped out at us. And we said, oh, this is interesting. And so we kind of scaled up those batches. And over time, you know, it, it took us quite a while and quite a bit of uh, effort to finally get those yeasts going. But now we have three different strains that we use for all of our farmhouse sales. And we pitch those into the cool ship. So they outcompete any of the other microflora around. Mm-hmm. Um, but we find that that's more of a uh, the expression that we're trying to achieve uh, for our um, for our farmhouse sales. And yeah. and are you did did you name these Saccharomyces brandy branding <laughs> I, I, Actually, they're they're named after where we found them. So uh, as as you can probably see on the bottle there, uh, that one's called Hope, and that came from the Hope tree, which is a tree right okay. in the middle of our fence line in between our grain fields. Oh yeah. All right, Patrick. Uh, okay. give us a so this has a classic, a classic farmhouse presentation. It's beautiful. It's sort of straw colored. It's hazy. It's very effervescent. Um, I'm a little worried that my post-COVID uh, senses are dull, but um, uh, it's got a lovely, a lovely soft aroma to me. Maybe it's stronger to others, but um, it's not a lot of funk. But it's very. Um, I'm trying to. Maybe you should help me describe the the aromas of it. Apple, apple. I want to say even. Yeah, for sure. Orchard fruit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When we're uh, talking customers through our different farmhouse ales, um, we always point out this one as being a bit more expressive than, for example, our Fieldborn. A couple of the other beers that we put out um, are, you know, certainly also yeast driven, but so delicate. Um, really, really sessionable uh for me anyway this one um has a bit more complexity a bit more stone fruit um just a um a very you know still delicate but uh more complex than than our others yeah and i get honeysuckle i get wildflowers in this one Mm, um i get some orchard fruit uh and i also depending on the grist we use with it it can also express more of an um it can throw more of an abbey uh kind of taste to it Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm getting. Um, I'm. I'm. I, I understand the stone fruit sort of deep inside. Um, for me, the the flavor that's coming out quite uh, dramatically is uh, the orchard fruit pear. I would even call it. Um, Absolutely, nice, yep. Really nice pear note. Um, and it also has that. Is this is this largely the same grain as the um, as the pilsner we tasted? Um, I'm trying to think. No, that was actually before. So they 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 rest in barrels for six to twelve months, and so uh, okay. that was the previous uh, previous harvest. I don't know how John remembers all of this. I, I had to look at him and say, "What harvest was that?" I don't know. That's one of the things that we try to lay out on the labels is very specifically the exact percentage of what comes from our farm versus another you, farm, and really try to be as transparent as as possible. So there's no questions left, and all this somehow sticks in his head. I just can't, can't quite keep up. You. You do, and I'll just throw in there that also on the label you say that you use your own well water, um, which yeah. is interesting as well. So how how's the how's the water on the farm? Well, I mean the, the and, name Wheatland Spring, and, and and let me just ask, do you treat it? Because I was I was going to make that comment on the Pilsner, but yeah. So answer both of those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, don't. yeah, we we don't we we put it through a, a simple filter to take out the silt uh, from the well, but that's it. That's our, our biggest compliment. Are the um, the cyclists who pull up on the weekend often right when we opened around 11 or 12 based on the type of year and they fill up their sim- we have an outdoor spigot they simply fill up their water bottles they keep mm. riding and later in the afternoon they come back for a beer but they come here for the water which we find really <laughs> exciting <laughs> and uh, do you know what's in in the water is it a, a soft water hard water 
uh, minerals. Yeah, it, it's actually it's very low on everything, which is great for us. Uh, okay. And so slightly low pH, which is good. It's trending in the right direction. And there's very low minerality because um, this goes way, way down um, into the land. And it's 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 very good water. And that's one of these things where you can't plan around. It just is or it isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This well is about four. Yeah, and a lot of the a lot of great brewers have bad water, so uh, you can you can work around it if you have to. But it's sure. nice to not have to. Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah, this is really, um, really lovely. I asked you about the the malt because I I also have that little that just slight hint of sweetness on the tongue, mm-hmm. um, which is quite yeah, delightful. It's, that's that's that honeysuckle I kind of get from it, and mm. and it's funny because this one I can't remember if this one was zero Plato or is negative Plato. I mean, this thing is dry as a bone. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that it was diastaticus for folks who are listening who don't remember. We've talked about it in the past, but diastaticus is a a highly attenuating yeast and. Uh, I won't. I won't repeat the the whole process, but that means that it will dry a beer out quite quite profoundly. So um, uh, that probably accounts for the low the low attenuation here or the high attenuation here. Um, you have three of these strains today. They one of the big problems with native sack is that they don't ferment beer out very well. So they they you know they crap out at two or three percent alcohol. Clearly, yours are much more alcohol tolerant. Uh, how how do they perform in the brew house? Yeah, I mean they're they're great. All of the all of these are in the cool ship, and so it's all open air. Um, the geometry is different, so they're not in conicals for the most part. Once in a while, mm-hmm. we'll do something, but um, for the most part, they're there. And we there's pictures on our Instagram and other spots like that where we put some of the um, the meringue that comes off of these things, and it's incredible. And the smell is unbelievable uh, upstairs <laughs> once these things get ripping. It's we this is one of these things where you just it's like the water. You just kind of you get lucky, and so. Um, we, we worked hard to get them, but now that we have them, um, we we're, we're super fortunate that they go in all of our farmhouse sales. And we love to experiment and- it with it year round as well. So sometimes in the, in the loft, it's been, you know, 98 degrees ambient temperature and we're still in cool <laughs> shipping and, you know, seeing what that does. Yeah. yeah. Holy moly. Uh, I want to take a moment and just compliment you on both of these beers because they're both extreme, extremely, uh, uh, delightful, um, completely flawless, and uh, um, really nice, interesting beers. And um, what I really enjoy about the whole project is how much you're tied to the land and sort of tasting the beers and trying to sense the land. It would be even better in situ, I'm sure, uh, sitting in front of your barn. But um, but yeah, they're they're really excellent. Thank you very much. That's incredibly kind. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I agree. And you you had sent me some beer. Uh, I think uh, maybe a couple of years ago, or like 2020, John, and your Italian Pilsner Alberto, is that what it's called? Yep, that's it. Uh, really impressed me. And so I'll echo what Patrick says. It's not just that you do a cool thing. You, you At the end of the day, you're a farmhouse brewery, so the beer really matters, and you're, you're, you're really, I think, hitting your marks, which is ultimately as as cool as a lot of this stuff is people are going to care mostly like how's the beer yeah. <laughs> if the beer's no the good people are not going to come 100 uh, and, and, and that's and that's a testament to the team and, and that's something we're, we're we're excited to share with them as well so i appreciate the kind words yeah i just yeah. want to make sure and get so, that in that we've talked so much about the process but i want to say the product itself is is fabulous yeah i, I totally agree and and let's let's do a little bit more business and why don't you tell people uh how they can find their your beer and how they can uh, find you because I bet visiting the, the, the farm is pretty cool. 
Yeah, so uh, great news for you guys. We do direct ship to Oregon. We do direct ah. ship to Pennsylvania, DC, and Virginia. So um, at different times in the shop on our website, we have different packages available to Oregon and Pennsylvania. And then for Virginia and DC folks, they can select anything on our website. Um, we also have, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, we're only an hour from DC. We're about 30 minutes from Dallas International Airport. Uh, we also have a bed and breakfast on the property. So one of my other hats is doing that. It's a one bed bedroom, one and a half bath uh, bed and breakfast. We nice. uh, really have a lot of fun with that. We've had folks from Arizona, um, Delaware, kind of all over the place coming to spend not just uh, a day on the farm, but a full weekend and getting into it. So uh, lots of different ways to experience it. We do have a, a, um, a small distribution footprint, um, but really the, the best way is to uh, check us out directly, wheatlandspring.com or Wheatland Spring on all your social medias as well. And and if you're in the area, can you do you guys have a tap house, a tap room? Yeah. Can you come out and have a pint? For sure. Absolutely. So uh, we're in winter hours right now. We're open Thursday through Sunday right now. But certainly, um, you know, you can always find the different opening hours on our website. Uh, we've got a ton of outdoor space, can never feel crowded here. Um, and also indoor seating as well in case it's a, you know, a rainy or a cool day. Yeah, it, it's right. hard to beat sitting in the beer garden watching your uh, beer grow. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> to get the full experience. Well, this is awesome. I, I know that uh, the East Coast has a lot of people who like to travel uh, to taste their beer. They usually go north to Vermont, uh, maybe to Western Mass, but maybe they should be heading your way to, to have a pint uh, of one of these wonderful beers. So maybe folks will will go on an expedition down toward your direction. I think it's, a, you know, you're doing something that not so many people are doing right now, and I hope you're trendsetters because this is a lot of fun. We oh, appreciate that, Jeff. We like how you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we love cool uh, beer experiments. And, um, it, you know, it's the small brewers who always do the most interesting things, uh, the people who think outside the box. So it, you guys are, you, you mentioned, Bonnie, a while ago that you are innovative and you're innovative in a very retro way. But I think you're exactly right. Where, whereas many of the breweries we think of as innovative are using plastic buckets to create flavors, uh, you know, in their beers. Um, uh, there's a, a different way to go, which is to make your own, uh, grow your own barley and, and have it malted locally and, and then make your beer out of that way in your barn. That's pretty, pretty amazing. And on my end, I'll close it with a challenge for you both. So we have a very special <laughs> exclusive t-shirt here on the farm. No one is allowed to wear this t-shirt or have one unless they've put blood, sweat, or tears into the farm. So <laughs> if you guys are in the area, um, come out and you can be a farmhand with us for the day and you can earn your t-shirt. Challenge uh, accepted. Uh, Absolutely. Oh, right. <laughs> I would love it. Love it. Love it. I'll have to make yeah. a trip. We'll, we'll, yeah, we, we'll, we'll put that on the agenda. <laughs> Excellent. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, we ran even longer than I thought we would, but, uh, and I think we could probably talk for uh, equally this long uh, if we wanted to keep going. So we really thank you for taking the time. Uh, it was, it was really fun to hear what you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you so both. much, yeah. guys. Thank you both so much. Well, thanks again to John and Bonnie from uh, Wheatland Spring Brewing in... Water, Waterford, Virginia. 
Uh, yeah, I looked on the map and I couldn't see a Waterford. I, they're rural. It's one of those things where you have to have an address, but I don't know that there's even. A I think they're like in the very, very far northern little tip of Virginia. Virginia looks kind of like a snake that ate an, ate an elephant or something, right? And <laughs> and I think they're like on the top, the, the tip of the bulge or something like that. But uh, delightful guess, super wonderful thing they're doing. Um, I was absolutely 100% sincere. The beer is flawless. It's clean. It's it's Moorish. It's delightful. I was just talking to Jeff <laughs> a second ago that uh, we're recording this in the morning and um, it's gone straight to my head, which is not a bad thing necessarily. But uh, yeah, uh, really, really great. Great people. Great, great concept. Great beer. Yeah, that was a, a lot of fun. We never uh, know how those things are going to go because we haven't talked to the folks before, uh, especially when it's across the country. Uh, but that was a really fun conversation and what they're doing really got my juices flowing. And I mentioned this before. I mean, you know, beer geeks are weird. They get they get caught up in, in some things that I feel like are pretty common. Uh, and then they mm-hmm. ignore things that I feel like are really uncommon. Right. Um, so I feel like this is quite uncommon. And if you're going to drive three hours to see something cool and unusual, maybe it's not going to do so well on untapped, you know, maybe that's like not the point, but um, if you're in, into the, into the journey rather than destination, this is, this is a, a great place to go. Yeah. It's something we talk about a lot when it's fresh hop season. We talk right. about how you, how what I love about fresh hop season is it connects you kind of with the land. It feels much mm-hmm. more like a wine experience where you really sort of get a sense of what the hop harvest this year is like, and you get a sense of the hops themselves and the real vegetal organic kind of aspect of them. And this is similar in, 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 in the malt sense. And I've become lately, I think it's kind of become a little bit of a theme of our, <laughs> of our podcast, which is we're really deep into malts. And uh, I think absolutely appropriately. So, I mean, it is the base of the beer itself and and to have that connection with the land and to really really feel like um it's a local and it's and it's uh, a really organic part of the beer itself is is pretty special i think it's um it's a great 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 thing they're doing i totally agree and if i live close it would be fun to go back every after every harvest when they release their new uh pilsner or whatever they're releasing that mm-hmm. has the i mean i don't know if they'll continue to do return they're they're Piedmont Pilsner, or if they switch it up, but it would be fun to go back and, you know, the new, the new barley and malt harvest is in and we've got this new beer and let's see what the new, you know, the new batch tastes like. Um, yeah. It's, it's the opposite uh, of pursuing a beer because it always tastes the same. It would, it would be fun to see, you know, let's, let's see what Wheatland Spring tastes like this year. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can't wait to go and visit, uh, to be there in, in situ, as I said, in the, in the, in the interview and just uh, sort of not uh, something they're right. There's something special about experiencing the beer, drinking the beer in the place where it was sort of grown um, to, to, to sort of torture the, <laughs> the metaphor, but right. Like, I mean uh, to, to be right there where it all came, uh, came together, came to fruition. So it's not something you get to be able to do in the United States much at all. And so this is, or at all, this is a unique experience. Yeah, there there are farmhouse breweries, but actual farmhouses where you've got an actual farm, you're growing your own, growing your own barley, really rare. So hopefully yeah, they're absolutely going to create some interest. I hope they're successful, and people look at that and say, "That's a lot. That looks like a lot of fun. I would like to do that because I I would like to see yeah. more of these." Absolutely. So all the people who are in the D.C. area, what like Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York. I mean, there's so many 
places close by that you can go and take a little day trip out to Wheaton Spring. That's right. It's not. It's the it's the Northeast, man. And if not, Northeast then better. just get online and order it. WheatlandSpring.com, <laughs> I think, is what they said. Uh, sure. I don't know. Wheatland Spring. Google it. Yeah, you'll find it. <laughs> well, Jeff, I think I think uh, that was such an in, uh, intriguing and lovely interview that it went long, and so I think we've kind of lost our chance to do mailbag. But we That's do right. have some mailbag entries that we will get to next time. So thank you very much, and please continue to uh, populate the mailbag with your questions, comments, uh, uh, suggestions for future shows. Uh, we apologize for the sort of relatively low productivity mode we're in right now um that should hopefully we've i think we've said this in the past uh and it's not been true but i think that'll <laughs> that will get better soon uh and we will definitely endeavor to to start uh producing more content indeed as they say and it'll as be, they say in the in the industry we'll try to we'll try to make it as uh as as high quality as this one was <laughs> By the way, before we go out, I'm about to do the outro, but before we go out, uh, you and I both got contacted a little, little while ago by the Manscaped people. Because I think about all of the podcasts I, I uh, listen to that have uh, the commercial part of it, and we don't, because we are not sullied by commercialism. We are pure as the driven snow. But anyway, man, Manscaped, we shout We would us. love to be sullied. If you want to contact us, or, I mean, I'm, I'm Absolutely. So Anybody but ready. Manscaped. I can't, the, the idea of some 250-something guys <laughs> talking about male grooming is just no. Yeah. <laughs> like, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly. There's no amount of money in the world where I was going to talk about, like, trimming your pubes or something. So. I'm with you there. I'm with you there. In fact, you, you've already you gone too far. Down below I don't want anything to do with it and I don't want to know about it. So. That's right. And no one wants to know about it with us either. <laughs> it's the last thing they want to know about. <laughs> Why that popped into my head, I don't know. I blame COVID. <laughs> uh, all right. A few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. And this is actually how you can help us out. Do rate us. Yeah. Uh, that helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, even though we've eschewed our mailbag, we do have some mailbag entries to we'll get to next time. But do send your questions, comments, suggestions to Jeff at beervonablog.com or on Twitter. You can find us at beervonapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog and he tweets at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beernomics. I do. All right. I have to cheers with the Merveille, uh, which is their open fermented farmhouse ale from Wheatland Spring Brewery in Virginia. And I have a swallow, and literally that's all I've saved, <laughs> uh, is a swallow from Return, the 100% uh, barley from Wheatland Spring farm yeah the beers are pretty pretty moorish i I do have to say indeed All all right jeff well cheers cheers patrick